I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 88 of the Talking Golf History Podcast, in part two of the rise and demise of McGregor Golf. This is the story of how one of the greatest golf companies that ever existed fell from its perch and into oblivion. We are joined again by my golf spy writer, John Barba, and we are about to get into some crazy stories. In part one, the death spiral had begun, with the company being sold over and over. But all is not lost, because Jack Nicholas is just around the corner to save them. Or will he? Before we started our show, I wanted to thank you for listening. This is our 88th episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast, and for episode 100, I am going to have a massive, and I mean massive, giveaway for our listeners. I'm going to be giving away items from Pine Valley, Augusta National, Cypress Point, Seminole, Chicago Golf Club, National Golf Links of America, and many more famous and historical golf courses from around the United States. I have no idea how I'm going to do it but I have 12 episodes to figure it out. It's my way of saying thank you for tuning in. Let's start part two where we left off. The bowling company Brunswick is about to sell McGregor to the lumber company Wicks. And our story starts to get a bit crazy from here on out. Let's join in. So this goes on for like 20 years, this this uh, Brunswick kind of endeavor and you know they've gone through leadership changes they've you know they've screwed over the pros if you want to call it that uh they don't take on this new technology the precision casted molding and they decide finally in 1978 to sell so we go from a shoe last company to a golf company to a bowling company and we sell to the wicks is that fair what what who are the wicks what's going on there the Wicks Corporation, um, they were the world's largest lumber retailer. Okay. I mean, I can see that. All right. We're looking at wood wood clubs back then. That might make a little I sense. Guess, guess. We don't. We have steel shafts, so maybe a steel company. But why the Wicks Company? What happened here? Well, this was 1978. So Brunswick owned the company from 1958 to 1978. And when I read this, I couldn't believe it. In that 20-year period, they never turned a profit. Oh, my God. They they took they had a company that the last year of of Goldsmith ownership had a close to a twenty five percent profit margin on the bottom line in the twenty years Brunswick owned it they never never turned a profit. I mean, what could go wrong, John? I mean, the Wicks family is going to turn this thing around. This is where McGregor makes the mighty comeback. Well, you'd think, but. <laughs> 
Wicks, Wicks was into to, to lumber. They were into furniture. They were uh, it made of machinery and equipment for both the lumbering industry and the farm industry. Um, they they owned they were into retail clothing. They also owned the Snyder Drug Pharmacy chain and Red Owl Supermarkets. So clearly, McGregor was the obvious and obvious pick. Obvious pick. Company to add to the portfolio. Right? So why would they buy it? What, what what do you think? I think it was I think it was a toy. Yeah, I think they're a bunch of golfers. Bunch of golfers, particularly Clark uh, Clark Johnson, who was the executive VP, who really drove this deal. He was a member at Pine Valley. He was a member of the Royal and Ancient, uh, and he was just a, an avid, avid golfer. And he really sold upper management on this on this move. Now the company was already leveraged from a lot of previous acquisitions, so this was a real leap of faith. Yeah, and they uh, picked up all that leverage, right? Yeah. Yeah, oh. they, they, it was a really We've crazy. heard this story before, John. <laughs> yes, we have. Oh. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. Um, and Wicks struggles with McGregor, really don't know what to do with it, and they own it for about four years. In um, early eight, 1982, they sell it to a group headed by Jack Nicholas and, surprise, surprise, Clark Johnson for about $17 million. So that's off the book. Which is how much they lost in three months? Is that right? Or is that fourteen million? It was close. Close, yeah, real close. <laughs> but but that's that was just uh, you know that was just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic for Wicks because thirty days later, thirty days after the sale was complete, they filed for Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. At the time, it was the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history. The Wicks family. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And and I mean, it's not caused by. The acquisition of McGregor, it was just, it was a, perhaps a symptom to a yeah. larger problem. Yeah, McGregor, McGregor could have been anybody. It just, it didn't, it, it was just, a, it was an acquisition they didn't need to make. It sure as heck didn't help, but all of the signs were there that this company was in trouble. So they're selling to Jack Nicholson Company, and I guess on the face value, that might sound like a horrible proposition for Jack, who's still on tour and still winning majors. Yep. But it, it necessarily wasn't the case, right? I mean, Jack does a pretty good job with this, doesn't he? Jack does a really good job. For the first time, he turns a profit. For the first time since 1957, McGregor is profitable. Now, when he took over, it was a $40 million company, which sounds really great, right? But if you adjust for inflation, remember in 57, 58, they had a, uh, if you adjusted for infl- inflation, sales were $172 million, all right, on that $17 million in 1950s money. 1982, it's a $40 million company, which sounds like a nice, nice growth, but adjusted for inflation, that's $122 million. So they're going backwards, if you think about it. They, they are going backwards. But Jack was able to turn a profit. Um, a couple of things that they did, they sold, they had a, they had a McGregor of Japan, which was insanely uh, uh, profitable and insanely successful. But the problem was, because of some tax laws in Japan, they couldn't take the profits back to the U.S. and use them. So they figured, well, we might as well sell this thing. So they sell 75% to a distillery in Japan, uh, but they still have the McGregor name. Um, the other thing they did, that Jack did at that point, was they embraced investment casting and game improvement. Uh, Clay Long, who was uh, a young engineer, they hired him in 1980, and before he turns 30, he's the executive vice president of research and development, a brilliant guy. Um, He designs the CG-1800 irons that Chichi Rodriguez used on the senior tour when he first started, and he's winning everything in sight. 
So those things are really, really successful. They've got Don White, who's grinding the grinding the. A legend, a legend in grinding. Legendary. Uh, Chi Chi Rodriguez once said of Don White, "says Watching Don White grind an iron is like watching uh, Da Vinci paint the Sistine Chapel or Hogan practicing." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have some Don White ground uh, wedges. I'm, I'm keeping them forever. Yeah. I mean, they're like little pieces of art. Oh yeah, and you can still—he's still out there doing his thing. Still, it, it's, uh, again, it, it, those those are those are collectibles and, and just works of works of art. So, so like everything's going great. I mean, for the yeah. most part, you're turning a profit. I mean, oh, and they're about to get better. Yeah, they're about to get better. In '86, what happens? Well, Jack wins the Masters with the ZT response putter, which was a McGregor, that massive black object that he hit, basically a tin can. Right. <laughs> the whole dis- development of that product was a complete accident. The way it started was um, long, uh, the way the story long tells, and uh, a delightful guy to talk to, and just a wonderful storyteller. Um, they started designing an, a putter to be corrective. They learned in their research that, you know, whether you're a pro or an amateur, you have a bias on what you view as squaring up the putter to your target. Some of us think we're lining up the putter square, but it's really open. And some of us think we're lining it up and it's actually closed. So they wanted to come up with a way to fix that. So what they did was they developed a, 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 an oversized putter with a really deep face with an overhang. And what you did was you lined up that overhang with the putter the way you thought it would be square. And if you were one of those that you know, wouldn't ordinarily wind it up, you know, line it up open, the putter face underneath that overhang was actually closed. So you'd be straight. And the, and the, if you, if you were generally closed, the putter face would be open. So it'd be straight, but it had to have a really deep face because the ball had to, had to be, you, the ball couldn't hit the, the, the overhang and had to hit just all club surface. So it was a really cool idea. Problem was the USGA said, no, you can't have an overhang on a putter. So they're thinking, ah, oh, crap, you know, all this work and we can't do it. But Long said, you know, maybe we could turn this into a, a moment of inertia story so it won't twist. Uh, Slotline was selling a putter called the Inertial, which was perimeter weighted. The answer, of course, was the original perimeter weighted. So they thought they'd have a, an oversized perimeter weighted story to tell. So they developed a bunch of prototypes. Sales meeting in 1985 uh, Jack Nicholas is there, and Clay says, come on, Jack, I want to show you something. They were going to go see a robot that they had invented to sand woodheads. Um, as they're walking to the where the robot is, they have to walk through the R&D lab, and they walk right by Clay's office. And Clay has some of these prototypes here. And he picks one up and says, hey, hold on a second, Jack. Check this out. What do you think? And Jack looks at this monstrosity of a putter and says, I- is this a joke? <laughs> he looks at it, well, what the hell is this? this is, is this a joke? And, and Clay says, no, just roll a couple. So he rolled a few. And Jack looks at it and goes, why don't you send me a few? Which, man, a few words, right? Two weeks later, Clay gets a call from Jack and says, you know that putter you sent me? They're not half bad. Which, according to Clay, from Jack, that was high praise. Because he never had anything nice to say about anything. <laughs> they're not half bad. <laughs> so they're looking at, you know, they, they decide to make a product out of it. So they start ramping up production, and, and uh, they show it at the PGA show at the beginning of 86. Now, in 85, the entire McGregor company sold about 1,200 putters. In, at the PGA show, they were giving them away to some pros and, and taking orders. At the show itself, they took orders for 5,000 of the ZT response. Yeah. 
next thing they know, Jack's playing it on TV on on tour. And even though he's playing terrible, people are seeing you see him on TV. Here's his putter. So between the PGA show and the Masters, they took orders for another twenty thousand. Yeah, and, and and let's face it, that putter is massive. I mean, you can see you watch the. You know, we won't mention the story that's coming up because I don't want to give it away. But when you see this massive putter, it stands out. You're never going to confuse it with a different putter. It still stands out today. I, I played a couple of weeks ago with a guy who had one in his bag. And, you know, even then, I, I, I noticed it because it was so huge, you know, and, uh, and he, he said he loved it. He's been playing it for, you know, since 1986. And you, no way you're getting out of his getting it out of his bag. But then Jack wins the Masters and everything goes kaboom. By noon, he won the Masters on a Sunday. By noon Monday, they had orders in-house for another 5,000. By the end of the year, they had shipped 150,000 of these putters, and they could have sold more. They had orders in-house for more. They just couldn't make them. 150,000. And again, how many did they do the prior year before this putter? 1,200. Wow. Staggering. The single most, single most successful club in, in, in McGregor's history. By the time it by the time it was moved out of the uh, out of the uh, the lineup, they'd sold over uh, three hundred fifty thousand of them. Unbelievable, right? Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So, like things are going great. Nothing's yeah. going to go wrong. I mean, we're on the rise. You're selling a record number of putters. <laughs> McGregor's turned its profit. You know, the people are buying the clubs again. Everybody's loving it. And then, I mean, something totally unrelated to the company happens. And, yeah. and I honestly think it's one of the most fascinating stories in the history of the game of golf. Right. And it, it, it was St. Andrews in Yonkers. It was all about St. Andrews. Um, Jack, in 1979, Jack's you know, architectural and development company entered into a deal with St. Andrews to uh, kind of take over the, 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 cl- the club, if you will. St. Andrews, you know, legendary club, I guess, was the first, the first country club in the U.S., um, had been falling on hard times. Their membership was dwindling. They had less than a, fewer than 150 members in in 79. Yeah, and mind you, this is one of the first five clubs of the USGA, founded in 1888. Right. I mean, a, a, we actually did a podcast on the history of St. Andrews mm-hmm. in the in Yonkers. Yeah, le- le- again, legendary course, but hard times. Uh, so what Jack agreed to was uh, was to a deal where he would finance the club's debts and deficits take over that refurbish the course refurbish the clubhouse refurbish some of the buildings on 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 site and then he'd build 209 condos and so yeah for jack this is really a real estate play over right. a design play exactly. right it is you know it, let's make this deal i'm going to basically redesign your golf course and modernize it and in exchange, I'm going to get this real estate, and I'm going to build these homes, condos, etc. And that's how what my affection, affectionately the uh, the payment's going to be. Right. And here's the thing: the 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 deal was for one dollar. He got the property for one dollar in exchange. St. Andrews got a 99 year lease. The money, the cash layout for Jack was six million dollars for all of the improvements. Now it would have been nice if it stayed at six million dollars, but it didn't. You know there were delays, cost overruns, etc. And by 1986, Jack is. We're also dealing with inflation like we are now, right? right. I mean, this is a huge time where, you know, I don't know if it was truly a recession, but we were. Uh, inflation was running rampant. It was out of control. Right, and Jack just he ran out of money almost to the point where he was nearly bankrupted by this. Um, so he needs cash. What's his most valuable asset? Well, it's McGregor. 
And this is this is spring summer of '86 when this is happening, coming right off the big win at, at, at the Masters. Everything's going, you know, going going great guns for McGregor. Jack sells 80% of McGregor to the Ammer Sports Corporation of Finland. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. So we're going Ammer. So now we're on the third sale. Uh, right. Fourth. Sorry, fourth. I didn't count Nicholas in here. So we're on our fourth sale to Ammer. Uh, What do we know about Ammer? And can you walk us through this train wreck that's about to happen? Oh, boy. Ammer uh, from Finland. They were were a a sporting good sports equipment and tobacco company. I mean, other than tobacco, at least you're in sporting goods. Right. But mostly it's like hiking, you know, you're, you know, hiking, camping, uh, skiing, um, things like that. So they, they get into, into, into golf by buying McGregor and it was for, it was, it was an $8 million deal. And that was for 80% of McGregor. So Jack still held on to, to 20% of it. Now, Ammer, interestingly enough, later that year, Ammer buys Wilson. Oh, okay. That's, that story comes full circle. So going back to going back to 1934, Ammer owns both Wilson and McGregor, and Ammer didn't do either company any favors. As well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what could go wrong, right? Yeah, what could go wrong? It's uh, the Ammer, the death spiral of sales, exactly. And Ammer was very Brunswick-like in its in its management strategy, in terms that it was constantly shuffling in new people. Uh, uh, Clay Long said it was like it was like it was like watching an ep- watching the who go- who's on first routine. <laughs> These guys, um, it was it was kind of crazy. So they had rotating presidents, always changes in direction. Same thing was going on with Wilson. And then they made a, a just kind of a series of bad equipment decisions that that really impacted the you know the, impacted the future. Now, right after the ZT response, um, McGregor came out with two irons. One of them, the RPM, was a cast iron that was a real failure. They 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 had. Problems with heads breaking off after about twenty swings, which you know, that, that's not a good thing for a golf club. But they also came out with the JNP, which was oversized, cavity back, perimeter weighted, but forged. It's kind of like a slightly larger version of the of the Hogan Edge, and that was very very successful for them. And they had this oversized thing going with the response, and that's they had this oversized thing going. They so they decided to you know, on the on the R and D side, they decided to follow that path a little bit. Now the the Metalwoods thing, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the Metalwoods thing kind of kind of caught McGregor almost off guard. By the time Metalwoods became a thing on tour, McGregor was they they were the, I mean they were the they were the the the, the biggest persimmon driver. Yeah, they were the Woods Club. Like yeah. I mean, even today, if you're going to go buy a persimmon wood that is vintage. I mean, it's you can bank on McGregor. Like it's going to be the most expensive of them because it's considered the highest quality. Right, right. And they were they were riding that wave. And when you're riding a wave, you tend to to, to dismiss it. You got blind might, spots, right? Yeah, I don't want to get off this wave. And you're I mean, you're not wrong because they they did it. You know, twenty years earlier with you know cast clubs. Mm-hmm. You know, we're the forge company. We're the wood company. You know, we we don't you know we don't need to go in that direction because we set the market. But you'd think you'd learn. No. But you don't. <laughs> but you don't. Um, they did come out with a good line of Metalwoods. The Muirfields uh, came out in 89. Curtis Strange won the Open with those. Um, but they they never really embraced it early enough. Uh, and, 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 it, and the numbers are staggering. The I think it was 88 was the year that, the, that Metalwoods overtook 
Persimmon Woods on tour. Early in 88, McGregor was producing about 1,200 uh, woods a year. Uh, 1,200, I'm sorry, 1,200 woods a day. Oh, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, that number's wrong. 2,500. It was 2,500 woods a day would be produced at their factory. Within and when nine, you say woods, you're saying persimmon woods. Persimmon woods, right? Yes. You know, drivers, two, three woods, etc. Nine months later, they were down to 50 a week. Oh, wow. What That's a crazy. staggering move in the market. That's crazy. You cannot absorb that kind of loss in market share without doing something about it. But apparently, they didn't do anything about it. Oh, you know, they, wow. They, yeah. And, and here, here's the funny thing. They had been working on oversized metal woods. They had been working on that. They were ready to come out with an oversized metal wood in 1988. Clay Long had that thing ready to go by 1988. They were ready to come out with it two years before we, we ever saw the Big Bertha. Management said, manage, both management and sales looked at it and said, no one else is selling a 190cc driver. I mean, we're going to look stupid out there. Why would we do this? That's insane. And by the end of that year, their wood, their wood share dropped to nothing. Wow, I mean, that is insane. Yeah. It's like Xerox, right? Yeah. It's the Xerox story of basically selling off, you know, the opportunity to be the next Microsoft. Right. Or Polaroid. Why didn't Polaroid invent digital cameras, right? Yeah. It's, it's they same. had the technology. They were the you know, they just got rid of it. Right. Unreal. And I just there's there's misstep after misstep after misstep after that point, you know, between the Ammer management and what what R and D could come up with, because because Long's still developing stuff, and then funny, even when they had a successful product, then they wanted to get rid of it. Uh, he, Clay remembers a meeting, I think it was around 1989, 1990, where during an R and D meeting, the, uh, the leadership said to him, "We need a new putter concept. We need to move on from the response." And Long says, "Wait a minute." Let me make sure I understand you right. We have a putter that's totally unlike anything else in the market, and it's being played on tour by the greatest player who ever, who's ever teed it up, and we're selling a boatload of them, and you want a new concept? Do I understand you right? <laughs> Let's shut it down. <laughs> it's not, and it, it wasn't like there were a bunch of copycats out there either. It was, it was truly unique in the market. Yeah, well, and we're also not into the modern day where a new piece of equipment has to come out every year. Right. right. This is an era where you would have a, a driver or a putter that would, you know, you'd have one model for a five to 10 year period because it would sell. Right. It would, just, it would just keep selling. But here and this that's starting to change a little bit. Again, you've got uh, Callaway coming out with the Big Bertha Cobra. You know, Tommy Armour is is making a, a, a name for itself with the 845S. Um, Cobra is selling oversized irons. TaylorMade, the bubble chef, TaylorMade's making its its presence felt. So you've got the you've got the beginnings here of the big what what amount to the big five anyway, right? Um, and these are the guys that are getting the attention. These are the companies that are being viewed as innovative and moving technology forward. The '90s were an amazing time for golf equipment. Uh, but if you it, it that that old Ricky Bobby line, if you ain't first, you're last, right? And if you're stand, even if you're standing still, these other guys are moving away from you, so you're falling farther behind. And that's what happened. All the legacy companies, Spalding, Wilson, McGregor, it happened to all of them. 
in almost exactly the same way on so the equipment side. What happens with a mare here? I mean, their their run is another really short one. I mean, it is it's like the Wix company short. No, it's a little longer than that. It's it's about ten years. They okay, own, so they, they, they buy it in eighty six. They're done ninety six. Right around ninety six. Right, and they, they're selling to Snyder. No, not yet. Oh, okay. They well, sell actually to a British uh, company called Masters uh, Limited, or Masters International. They buy it in ninety six, and actually for about twenty million dollars. And. Um, it, I don't couldn't find out a lot about their stewardship, other than they they invested an awful lot of money in the 100th anniversary celebration of the company, going back to 1897, um, and they were they they were selling limited edition uh, commemorative sets that were actually pretty big bucks even for that back then, you know drivers for eight or nine hundred dollars, uh, iron sets for two or three grand. So even back then they were they were very very expensive. Masters owns the company for about a year and a half. Yeah, and that's a new record, folks. Right. <laughs> we've made history. Not right. in the great way, but we've made history. And in, in so in nineteen ninety-nine, early ninety-nine, they sell it to the Parkside Group and Barry Schneider. For they turned a nice profit. They sold it for forty two million. I mean, so that's seven sales in about forty years. Right, right. And the only time this company was profitable was that three or three or three or four year span that Nicholas was in charge. That's the only time it was profitable in that yeah, at once Brunswick bought it. And in and, and the end, I mean that's if you think about it, from Ammer to Masters to Schneider, that's three sales in less than three years. Three changes in ownership in less than three years. And I don't know of anybody that can, you know, keep any level of consistency with that. For sure. So Snyder's uh, group buys it, and we enter the current CEO of Live Golf, Greg Norman, appears on site. Yeah, as eventually, yeah, yeah, as part he's a, he's a board member. Is that how he he starts? That happens a little bit later. Actually, Norman was on staff in the '80s with McGregor. He was a McGregor staffer when he won the '86 Open, um, and he had a, long had a relationship. Even when he was playing Cobra in the '90s, the clubs were actually made by Don White. And they were called Mac Cobras. <laughs> uh, right. um, but Schneider takes over in 99, and he actually, he, he's a maverick. I mean, he made a lot of money in the flooring industry, sold his company to DuPont for like $300 million. So he had no connection to golf, but he, other than, you know, he had money and he had some ideas. And he actually did institute a lot of uh, badly needed changes. First off, he said, you know, we're getting out of the retail business. We're getting out of the low-end business. Uh, even though it was a huge chunk of their their sales, they were pretty low margin. He wanted to get back into the high-end premium forging market. Now, again, think about this. Late 90s, high-end premium forging, what's everybody buying? They're buying pings. They're buying Cobras. They're buying TaylorMades. All right? You know, they're buying Callaways. Right. They're, they're buying game improvement irons. Those are the big ones. Those are the big sellers. Um so he's, he wants to move back to the premium forging routes, and he, he's quoted as saying, I don't want to be the biggest, I just want to be the best. So he just wants to be niche, and we're going yeah. back to niche. Yeah, he's yep. okay being small, but, but profitable, which is not a bad move. Um, but he's, he's kind of uh, he, he, like, a, you know, like a puppy playing with a, different, with a toy, and then you see a different toy. He's kind of, this is cool, no wait, we're going to do this, no wait, we're going to do this. So they would alternate years where they would have multi-million dollar ad campaigns 
And I don't know if you can you can you hear my landlady mowing the lawn? Outside? I can. Yep, it's all right. We'll get through it. <laughs> okay. It's too uh, good of a story. We'll get, everyone will accept I, it. I, yeah, I don't want to stop, right? Um, so he goes from alternating 10-15 million dollar ad budgets and promotional budgets one year to maybe a million bucks for promotion the next year and then go back up to 10 or 15 million bucks. Uh, you know, so at this time then the company is still technically growing about 50 million dollars in sales but now if you convert that to 2022 the sales are down to 88 million so again you see the company going backwards going backwards and are they making a profit no wow not that we not that we can tell yeah that's tough yeah and you know again every the golf business is still going crazy just a few years prior we had cobra selling to titleist for or cushion it for 700 million that kkr deal was spalding for a billion unbelievable okay. right Hogan was sold tommy armors changed hands about four or five times in this time frame so i mean it's crazy you got callaway you got TaylorMade. all these companies are 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 are, are going strong the big five is forming links goes under and and schneider's trying to turn mcgregor into a niche company um he's he's trying to target this is weird. This is part I didn't. I, I just can't wrap my head around. All of his ads are targeting younger golfers. So the ads have rock music and stuff, and they're targeting younger golfers. He's sponsoring college teams. He's got like twelve hundred demo days scheduled across the country, and spending a lot on in-store marketing and stuff. But he to, he's marketing forged blades to younger golfers. Wow. Yeah, that's a tough move in that market. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But even then, even then, he had six, some successes. My favorite irons, the VP, uh, the VIP, uh, 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 VIP V foils, the, the CB, the CBMB set. I've got again. Th- that's my go-to iron. I screw around with different clubs from the start of the season to August, and usually by August, I go back to the V foils. It's just the way it is. Um, but beautiful, beautiful clubs. Um, and he's making other moves as well, trying to beef up the beef up the company. He buys back the 75% of the of McGregor Japan. He brings Bobby Grace into the fold for Bobby Grace putters. And they made some amazing putters for a few years. Absolutely, absolutely incredible putters. So they're trying, they're trying to 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 bring the company back. One and of the how, mistakes, how are people buying their clubs at this point? Is it green grass? Is it retail? Where where do you find these McGregors? At this mostly, period of time, it's mostly retail at this point. And, and when we say retail, what, where are we buying these clubs? Um, to a certain degree, sporting goods stores, but mostly, you know, the new golf retailers. Back, you know, we started to have Golf Galaxy, Golf yeah. Smith. We're not talking though Walmart or you know places like that. No, no, he purposely turned his back on the on those. This is go, this is your what we would consider today as your traditional golf retailer. Um, you know, Nevada Bob's was still in business. Yep. Gosh, I remember Nevada Bob's. That's crazy. There you go. There you go. Um, now fast forward to 2006. Now Greg Norman shows up on the scene. Uh, uh, Adidas sells the Greg Norman clothing line to McGregor. And I think as part of the deal, they get Greg Norman (laughs) and he signed, he signs an endorsement deal and he buys 20% of the company. At that time, within two years, by two uh, by two thousand eight, within two years, Norman and and the board push Schneider out. A coup d'état. Coup, yeah, kind of a coup d'état, <laughs> right? Kind of a coup d'état. They push Schneider out, and Norman's named chairman of the board in the middle of the mid mid nineteen mid uh, mid two thousand eight. Actually, the news broke right about the time that uh, Norman was tied for the lead at the at the British Open. Which was an amazing open. I right. mean, I, I thought he was going to get one. I really, I thought he was getting it. 
Yep. And he, and he was playing the, the, the new MT prototype, the new McGregor MT prototype. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's the downsize. It's also 2008. Right. <laughs> and July 2008, everything's looking great, right? September 2008 is a lot like October of 1929. We are, we are about to enter a global financial collapse that affects everybody and everything, especially McGregor. Now, McGregor's at this point, McGregor is being hurt just like everybody else, but nobody really knows by how much. 2009 PGA show, McGregor had big plans, but they canceled out at the last minute to get out of the show. Behind the scenes, they're already in negotiations to sell. And by May tw- on May 20th, they announced that they were selling, the company was being sold to Golfsmith for $1.75 million. Oh, damn. Ouch. Ouch. Holy damn. That is insane. Yep. <laughs> and so Greg Norman, chairman, July 2008, I am assuming he's gone with oh, the yeah, sale. Uh, that sp- the spring of 2009, everybody's surprised to see Norman walking down the ferry with a TaylorMade bag. He had signed an, the chairman of the board signed an endorsement deal with TaylorMade. What <laughs> is going on? The chairman of the board, folks. Of yep. McGregor signs an endorsement deal with TaylorMade. It would have been. It would have been an. I would love to have been a fly in the wall for that board. The next board. I'm sorry, but that did not get reported well enough back in the day. That's headline news today, right? Yep. yep. Well, yeah. I mean, if it's Greg Norman, it's definitely headline news. Wow. So Golfsmith buys it with the intention of turning it into a premier store brand. Kind of like what they did with Link when they bought Lynx a decade earlier. Uh, and that didn't work out. And I think this one didn't work out for very similar reasons. Uh, when when Golfsmith bought Lynx, the plan was to make it a premier line. And they actually signed Payne Stewart and Ben Crenshaw. Um, but they kind of pulled the plug on the idea of making it a premier line because the owners of Golfsmith were afraid that the Callaways and the TaylorMades and whatever would think, okay, you guys are now competing with us. Sure. We're not going to sell you our stuff anymore. Yeah. Look at the margins you can make here. Your your salespeople are only going to push that. I get that. Yeah. So kind of, I think they were worried about a similar thing happen. So they went, they had big plans for McGregor, but they did it about 60%. Um, they, they did come out with one last fantastic iron, the 2010 McGregor VIP, which act, uh, one of the first articles I ever read that was written by my golf spy was a, a review of the 2010 forged cavity backs. And the McGregor finished third, but you could have made a case that it was maybe the best iron of the bunch. And again, I got a set of those as well. Excellent, excellent forged cavity back iron. Uh, KBS tour shafts. I mean, this thing, it's a really, really nice iron. So what happens here? So you're you're at a golf retailer. You're owned by a golf retailer. Mm -hmm. They go 60% in. Where does it end up? Like, how do we get to where we're at today? Well... If you're a serious golfer and you go into Golfsmith to buy serious golf clubs, are you looking at the store brands, or are you looking at are you looking at Mizuno? Are you looking at TaylorMade? Are you looking at Callaway? Are you looking at Ping? There was just no way they were going to be considered serious golf clubs. So that 2010 line, which they did put some energy and money into, really didn't sell very well. They had nice putters and everything else. Really didn't sell very well. They were priced at premier pricing, but Again, that, that that image of it being a store brand 
and a and 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 a name that hadn't been you know hadn't been um, you know premier for a long time. It just said, you know what? It's another store brand, and they became really cheesy looking game improvement beginner sets, box sets, things like that. By the time Golfsmith went out of business in 2016, now Dix bought everything, uh, everything from uh, from Golfsmith, including the brand names, uh, and they wound up selling the brand name to a guy in Nevada who owns McGregor uh, Ram uh, Zebra, a uh, couple of other old out of yeah. Who's names. this guy? I forget it. I forget his name. I've got I I got some emails from him. I got to go back and look it up. But he's he's looking to resurrect some of those brands, but not in a premier manner. I mean, they're, they're going to be uh, maybe the putters, maybe the zebra putters might have you not know, be premier, but everything else is kind of like uh, uh, kind of game improvement, beginner kind of stuff. And so it just it's just gone. Yeah, for all intents and purposes, I mean, you can buy McGregor gear in the UK kind of a separate brand separate separate name um I, I believe there's still mcgregor in japan um but as far as being the greatest name in golf that we came to know and love it's it's long gone i mean it's just it's, it's a crazy story i mean all of these stories are crazy and and, they, and so many of them have similar paths right uh, the the death spiral from multiple sales is always an indicator right that and it's, it's it seems to me uh, maybe not fairly that it seems to be it starts with a company that has no idea about the business they buy it and try to like mold it into what they do versus saying okay how was this right. successful prior right and 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 it you know it goes back to why did they buy it uh colgate palmolive buys penfold and ram in the 70s why because they wanted to sell more toothpaste and, and dishwashing liquid and they used it as a vehicle along with with motorsports to promote the brand well that's a an inconvenient marriage they they tried it for five years spent a lot of money and said nope we're out okay kkr buys spalding for a billion freaking dollars <laughs> all right and they're going to run it their way because a billion dollars is a lot of money. But why? Why did they buy it? Did they really do their homework? Did they have a background in sports, in golf? They're trying to run a golf business the way you run you know, a, a major corporation, and it just doesn't quite work. Same thing with Brunswick. Same thing with, uh, with Wick. Same thing with Amher. They, you know, they were trying to run it their way instead of running it the, letting it run the way that, you know, that, it, that made it successful. You look at Titleist. When Titleist was sold way back when, um, the, 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 the company that bought it said, keep doing what you're doing. You know, we'll leave you alone. As long as you're successful, we're going to leave you alone. Then it got sold to Fila. Same thing. Do what you do. Be successful. We're going to leave you alone. So s- being sold isn't a death knell. Who you're sold to and why. I mean, with Wix, it was a toy that doesn't, that's never going to end well. Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, but it's crazy because Wix, yeah, they screwed it up. Right? They screwed it up. They went bankrupt. Uh, you know, they, I guess they got their, their punishment for that, but then Jack Nicholas gets it and is turning it around. If not for a terrible real estate deal that almost put him in personal bankruptcy. I mean, who knows what McGregor could have been, right? You know, it might've taken a totally different move. Right. Right. I mean, it, it, it's a simple twist of fate, right? Now there was, there, there may be a, a situation where Jack got into something that he shouldn't have got into. Sure. I mean, that's tough. You're a plain pro owning owning a company. It's a tough endeavor. I mean, I I think we see that all over, unless you can just divest yourself, own the company and let others run it. But I mean, oh, like you think about what McGregor might be had, you know, Jack 
kept the realm. Maybe it's mm-hmm. the same path. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think anytime you're the Goliath, but David has a new technology, embraces it more than you, you're in deep crap. Right. <laughs> and and the other thing, too, is they there, there were missteps along the way on the equipment side that led to a public perception of McGregor as being a legacy, old school, almost yesterday's news kind of kind of thing. Same thing that happened to Spalding and Wilson. Yeah, perception. I think they missed the boat on three major three major things. First, first they missed the boat on investment casting. Right, that was something that you know it don't upset the the status quo is a very powerful mistress. Right, the status quo was forged premium product and persimmon woods. Why do we want to get into this investment casting? It's cheap. It doesn't make the best use of our labor. Our labor guys, our, our people are craftsmen. You know, it doesn't take much to make investment casting. You just, you know, you don't have to polish it. You don't have to do any hand grinding. You just make it, put a shaft in it, and bing, you're, you're good to go, uh, more or less. But they just totally rejected and resisted that idea until it was too late. And then the investment to get into investment casting was almost, it was almost too, uh, too high of a barrier. So they, they really missed out on that. The metal woods thing again, metal woods had been around since 1979 with Pittsburgh persimmon. I mean, they, you they, could argue they're around in the 1890s with mills, aluminum clubs for the record, but, but that, that was gone and here, here and gone real fast about a decade. I forget I'm talking to a real historian. <laughs> You're not going to let anything slide. Nerd, I'm a nerd. <laughs> but you know they and and here's the thing. Even they were they 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 were way behind on metal woods when they did come out. They 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 actually were fairly innovative. They were just late. Yeah, it's it's really hard to be second. Yeah. And when it comes to innovation. Yeah. And then the the whole oversized driver things like I said they had they were ready to go in 88 but management wouldn't wouldn't pull the trigger. They were ready to go with titanium. Long before the great big birthday. In fact, they were the first company to come out with an all titanium driver. And they were the first company to come out with a golf club that was designed with the aid of a computer in 92. The, T, uh, the T920 was the first golf club that was A, all titanium and B, designed with the help of a, of a computer. Crazy, right? And, and then here's another thing. Not long after that. They came out with a with a with the Mad Mac, which was a really ugly looking driver. It had this weird gear things up on the top to reinforce the crown, and it was all part of the part of the computer design. And they had internal buttresses that went from the crown to the sole to kind of reinforce the crown and sole, so you wouldn't lose as much energy when you impacted the ball. Now think about that. That's jailbreak. It totally is jailbreak te- technology. Yeah, yeah, they had this in '92. Wow. Yeah. So even if you are innovative, if you're viewed as not being innovative, you're not innovative. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. The market yeah. has passed you by. You know, it's funny because I, I look at it and and I think a lot of people will be educated from this and specifically your work with my golf spy. But, I, you know, I just assumed that we could have blamed McGregor's death on the, that very slow transition from Woodenhead to Metalwood. Um. And there's so much more. There's more depth and breadth to that demise to it. Right. It, it's never just one thing. It, very rarely. I mean, there's. This was just a, a a snowballing effect of changing. You know, again, you if if Goldsmith if Phil if Phil Goldsmith retained his health and had and had uh, children or grandchildren that had the business 
acumen and desire to take over the company, we're maybe having a different conversation. If they had listened to Tony Penna in the 50s and started to look at investment casting, they might be we might be having a different conversation. If Penna didn't leave in the 60s, he might they might be having a different conversation. If they if if Brunswick, you know, said, you know what, you're successful, we're going to leave you alone, and let McGregor be McGregor. And didn't do the, uh, didn't move to Georgia, didn't uh, uh, almost kill the company with the uh, operating system. Maybe we're having a different conversation. You know, it's just, it, you, you, you start to connect these dots, and it was just a series of things that turned the greatest name in golf into, no, into, into uh, a memory. You know, it, it's funny because I, I think you can look at out there in the golf world today and you just assume we're going to always see, you know, Titleist, TaylorMade, Callaway, et cetera. Mm hmm. And there's no guarantee. I mean, it's. I think it was very. Um, Jeff Bezos, I think, said in the last couple years that someday Amazon will go bankrupt mm. because there will be a disruptor in the market that will change even that dynamic. And so we assume that we're going to see these companies for the rest of our lives, but history tells us otherwise. And and I think that's one of the reasons you see companies coming out with new stuff every year or every other year it's that constant move forward the r&d guys they know what they're doing they're they they honestly believe every club they come out with is 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 better than the previous one not not revolutionary better it's probably incrementally better but they firmly believe they're pushing that ball downfield each and every year so they don't wind up in that 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 mode of hey we're in the business of we're in the business of selling people the stuff that we make they're constantly thinking about let's sell people, let's make stuff that people want to buy. And it, there's a difference. You know, we talked about that with Spalding before. There's a difference. If you are have that vision and you're, 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 you're seeing the future and you're trying to constantly innovate and make stuff that people want to buy, you're going to have more hits than misses. You're going to have your misses guaranteed, but you're going to have more hits than misses. And you can kind of help put that, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to prevent history from passing you by or the market from passing you by. It annoys the hell out of golfers. I'll tell you what, when, whenever we do a new product release story on my golf spot, people get really mad because, oh, another new driver that's going to make us hit the ball 10 yards. 10 yards no, farther. Yeah, yes. Nobody ever said that, but that's what people believe, you know, because it was a narrative years and years ago. But, uh, but that's, uh, that, on, the, on the one hand, it's a necessary step that, you, that I think companies have to take to prevent them from falling into the Spalding Wilson. McGregor. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how many. And I, you know, I, I, I'm probably maybe I'm giving people too much credit, but do they do they look at what happened to McGregor and Spalding and you know Wilson and try to learn from that by being proactive? And that's why we see so many releases, and that's why we see the pushing pushing of barriers of we can't be the one that turns our back on new technology. I, I think so, and I, and I think that's one of the reasons why you don't see any upstart companies coming up with with game changing technology anymore. You know, it used it used to be like Eli Callaway. They were they were making you know hickory shaft clubs you know for, as collectibles when he comes out with the Big Bertha, and that's a complete and utter game changer. You don't see that anymore. Yeah. Well, you and most of it is you almost can't, right? I mean, I'm sure right. there is. I shouldn't say that, but I mean, we have, uh, you know. An 860 core, we have a 460 cc, we have, you know, spring like, and we have moment of inertia standards. And I mean, I, I don't know, and maybe I'm wrong, but I, I seems to me the only 
you know, progression in real technology that's not going to break one of those is the technology in the shaft. Well, you've got the technology in the shaft, fitting technology is going, it keeps getting better. Uh, in, in, in say a driver, the technology isn't in making the ball go farther on a, on a perfectly centered strike. It's making the ball go not, not lose as much distance if you hit it on, on, uh, all over the club face. So if you look at my club face, you'll see what well, they're all over the place, right? That's the technology that they're, that, 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 that there's still room for improvement. Um, aerodynamics, things like that. And, and again, and forgiveness, those are all things that are, that are, are, there is room for improvement. Not a lot, but there is room for improvement there. You know, I, I you know, I've been saying with the live golf thing, um, that, we live in the most interesting of golf history times, at least in professional golf, but we might be bound to be in one of the most interesting eras in uh, golf equipment technology with a potential rollback coming mm-hmm. out. Uh, it'll be, a, it'll be very interesting to see how the big four fare when assuming mind you, there's bifurcation and how does advertising get affected when you know, you're certainly no longer playing. You're actually maybe playing a better driver than Tiger Woods. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, that'll be fascinating to me. I mean, because I assume they're probably going to hire me to be the spokesman. Right. And that's right. my guess, you yeah. know, yeah. because you can't have Tiger because I'm playing that driver. Tiger's not. Right. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what that what that's all going to mean. But, you know, and, and one thing I do know, if, if there is bifurcation, golf equipment's going to get more expensive. Because they have to all the research and development that and manufacturing that's going to go into product that you and I can't buy and the companies can't sell. Well, that cost is going to get passed on to the likes of you and me. Yeah, I mean you there'll know, be so. very specified equipment in that. Oh, you know, yoke that will essentially be just for pros, mm-hmm. and then all the technology. You know, gosh, I just I don't know where it's going to go. It's fascinating. It could be yeah. very fascinating. I should say. Yeah, I, I think there's a much simpler solution: grow the grass, you know, narrow the fairways for the pros. Yeah, they like the like the country club. Country club is not a long course, you know, and you know Matt Fitzgerald, not the longest hitter, but uh, but you know he 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 dominated the weekend. Yeah, I, I just tell people when they freak out about it, is you know there there's just has to be a line of expectation that we all have as golfers. Cause I mean, it's been a long time since, you know, I could say I could hit it even in the vicinity of how far a tour pro hits the ball. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, you know, I hate to say it like this, but and it is, it's probably always been, you know, a completely different game. Yeah. They do heroic things that are almost superhero ish. Right. Mm-hmm. And we play the game of golf and it's okay. You know, we can we can have the same equipment. They can hit it 400 yards. If you can separate that in your mind, you can enjoy both. Yeah, I mean, I personally don't care how far Justin Thomas or Rory hit the ball. Actually, when we were at the when we were at the Open on on Friday, and Rory hit a shot on 14 that was just unbelievable. He was a good 50, 60 yards past where Rory, uh, Jordan Spieth was, and it was just incredible. Um, and that was as a as a as a spectator. That was kind of thrilling to see, right? Do I do I care? No, I mean you're not you're and you're not going out to buy that driver because you're going to hit it that far, right? <laughs> you know, I, you're a realist. <laughs> yeah, I, I just you know, to me, it's, I don't care how far the pros hit the ball. 
you know, maybe the USGA is worried about its member organizations and member clubs being, you know, being shut out of possibly hosting majors and other tournaments because they just aren't long enough. Well, just boohoo. <laughs> that that argument goes back to the Penfold days, right? No, and, sure. And earlier, you know. So it's just the way it, it's just the way the world is. There well, are. Things I, I tell you one thing, John. I I think, you know, not to promote what you guys do, but I think you know even more so if there is bifurcation, you're going to have some amazing articles in my golf oh, spy, <laughs> but you'll really be, you know, the people's choice for figuring out what's the best fit. For me, I, I mean, I love the fact you guys are already doing this and you're looking at swing speeds and what's the best driver if your swing speed's 90 miles per hour. No, not, not a lot of people talk about that. Right. And right. it changes. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, I mean, I, I think it's really cool. As my swing speed gets closer to 90 than, than, than what it used to be. Yeah. Uh, those things are, you know, I pay more attention to those things. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's for the, it's, you know, by the golfer for the golfer. Okay. So before I let you go, what? Who are we tackling next? What do you think? Let's throw out some out some ideas. Oh boy, uh, the Link story is very good. Um, the Hogan story is very very good. I mean, yeah, because that's like a that's like a rise, demise, and rise again, and demise, and then rise again. That comp- that company's got off the mat more times than Rocky Balboa, right? <laughs> I mean, it might have to be that then Links, because I just think yep. you know the Ben Hogan effect and Ben Hogan's. You know, we can really dive into the history of Ben Hogan and his manufacturing process and, you know, the crazy things that he would do to produce golf clubs, even throwing away, you know, thousands of clubs because they were imperfect by, you know, a one one thousandth of a million millimeter. Right. Right. And and it's a it's a compelling story. And the great thing is there are still people around that work for the man. Yeah, this will be fun. Yeah, this will be fun. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We went along, but I think I'm just going to keep it one episode, folks. So I know you're already listening. It doesn't really matter to you because you're getting to the end of this thing and you're already (laughs) invested. But uh, it was a fascinating take. And I think we had to take this much time because for all the youngins out there, I don't think you'll ever appreciate how big McGregor was Mm. to really take this down. But imagine, again, imagine... Titleist, TaylorMade, and Callaway were basically the same company and then ceased to exist. That's yeah. kind of, you know, the gist of where that is. And if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Yeah, crazy. Well, thank you again, John. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Connor. This was a blast. I All right, till next time, the rise and demise. Thanks again, John. Take care. A special thanks to John Barba and my golf spy for this amazing story. I believe I mentioned this on the show but I had always assumed that McGregor lost its market share for being a late adopter to steel-headed drivers. But like many of these rise and demise stories, they seem to have similar stories of failure. The entrepreneur passes away, sometimes suddenly, and these companies keep changing hands from one non-golf company to another, losing more and more money with each sale. I thought this podcast had a great tie-in, by the way, to a podcast we recorded a couple seasons ago, The History of the St. Andrews Golf Club of New York. It's amazing how the story of Jack Nicklaus's real estate failure at St. Andrews doomed what otherwise might have been an amazing comeback story for McGregor. Thank you again for listening to episode 88. If you love this podcast, please leave a review and a comment 
and tell a friend or two. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Thank you.